first of all, um, you know, the, the major thrust of all of this is to look at your Senate career. But obviously you can't isolate that, and that yeah. overlaps a whole lot of things. And what I thought, before you were a senator, you were a legislator. Obviously in the House, and even before that in the, in the Kansas House. So how did you, how did you get into politics? Well, we had a law librarian who was, her name was Beth Bowers, a Democrat, who thought young people ought to be involved in public policy, politics, and she can, kept talking to us. We'd go down study, and she'd talk to us. Very nice lady. And I think she convinced, I think there are four of us to run for state legislature. That was way back in 1950. So, uh, you were at Washburn? Right. Uh, yeah, she was a Washburn Law School law librarian. So we gave it a shot, and I ran against a fellow named Mahoney, who thought he was going to be governor one of these days. And here I was, some young upstart, didn't know anything about politics, didn't know much about parties. And here I, I ran against him, and I think largely because of my veteran status and all that, you know, I prevailed. Plus, uh, even then, Russell County was tilted Republican. Yeah. But this was not something you thought about when you were in the uh, hospital after no. the war. I mean, no, Dan, in a way, tells the story that we talked about this at, when we were in the hospital in Battle Creek, Michigan, that uh, that I laid out a scenario that we ought to, what he ought to do is get out and get into public service and run for Congress. And yeah. and I said, well, if he says so, it's okay with me. But uh, I don't recall it, and I don't – I remember when I uh, – when I was in Russell recuperating, when I was on leave from Battle Creek Hospital, uh, and then when I was discharged, both parties were you know, looking for veterans to run for office. And I remember talking with uh, the Democratic leader, a fellow named Clifford Holland, who had uh, made a run at Congress and lost, uh, uh, and a young attorney named John Wolk, W-O-E-L-K, uh, Republican, and they were both wanting wanted me to run, and you know, in their party. So, but I somehow chose the Republican party. I guess my relationship with Wolk. And your parents, I think, had been Democrats. Yeah, right? I think they switched. Why don't they, they? You know, Clifford Hollum, when he ran for Congress, switched a lot of people in our little hometown. And at Russell, whether you're an R or D, didn't really make much difference. I mean, you know, if you knew the person, they were your neighbor. They didn't care whether it's Democrat or Republican. Uh, I mean, people were really active in politics, but most people then were pretty, you know, pretty laid back and didn't stay up all night watching the talk shows. There weren't there weren't any talk shows. So we we watched what's his name Brinkley, you know, the Goat Clan specialist. That was our radio show. What was your first campaign like? I assume you didn't have much money. Had had hardly any money and uh, it was all well you talk about grassroots. I mean it was it was grassroots. I mean uh, 
going from door to door, little town to little town, knocking, you know, in and out of businesses, uh, printing little cards that didn't say much, you know, have your picture, your name, running state representative. I think it said uh, native, veteran, something else, about three words, that's about all you did. Yeah. And uh, that was about it. I mean, you just, a lot, a lot of shoe leather. And I assume, I mean, you're building an organization, family, friends, I mean, yeah, one well, person at a time. It wasn't very big. <laughs> yeah, it really, when I ran for Congress, we really had an organization. But in the early days, running for state legislature and uh, and then later county attorney, it was pretty much solo. I mean, you had some friends who were, but I don't know, as far as people giving you money, I can't even recall getting any money from anybody running for county attorney or state legislature. Somebody may have given me $10 or $20, which would... Now, I remember you saying, I think it's in the book, or one of the books, I think the first time you had to go up and knock on someone's door, stranger's door, it was, yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't of, easy. Wasn't easy, because I... You know, in some ways, I was sort of reserved anyway. You know, my parents taught us to respect your elders and keep quiet until you're spoken to and all this. And uh, so to knock on someone's door and say, I'm Bob Dole, I'd like you to vote for me, and da-da-da. You know, it's like anything else, right? After you knock on 100 doors, it's pretty easy. All you worry about is some dog coming around the corner. And I've had a few of those <laughs> things happen, which are always keep you awake, but keep you alert. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you know you're, and I, I I didn't know at the time, but I've learned since probably about every only about every fourth door you knocked on in a primary voted anyway. So you know you knock on three doors, it's yeah. you waste a lot of time. Were people Generally, pretty nice. Oh yeah, they were very nice, and uh, you know, coming back from World War II, uh, having been wounded, you know, whether Democrats or Republicans, yeah. the the whole country was united. It's not like today, uh, and uh, World War II vets were sort of up on a pedestal. Uh, maybe not all deserved, but that's where they were, and. So everybody was nice to everybody because everybody had somebody involved, either raising wheat to feed us in the military or working in a little factory or being in uniform. So almost everybody, or you know, even the rationing, everybody participated in some Everybody made a little sacrifice as opposed to today when only the families and the people directly involved sacrificed. Do you remember election night? Uh, I kind of have a vague right? recollection of uh, particularly the legislative races, the legislative race. Uh, I can't remember how much I won by, but it was pretty pretty good margin. Uh, several hundred votes, as I remember. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think I was. I might have been a. 
when the, the old Russell record office, you know, they kind of got the news, or I might have been, I wasn't at the courthouse, so, but, you know, you'd call in the results to the county clerk, and the reporter would check with the county clerk. It was not very high-tech those days, so. <laughs> it was more fun. It's always more fun. You'd have to wait for Paradise. You, you know, it sounded like a great place to get votes. Paradise, get their votes in. They didn't have many people voting, but, of course, Russell was always the, the key. And I lived in Ward 1, and uh, I don't think he carried any wards in Russell. So I'm not sure he carried any wards <laughs> anywhere. But so. Now, so what was Topeka like? I mean, the whole legislative uh, environment. You're, you're a freshman, newcomer, first office. Yeah, um, I didn't, and didn't have a clue about anything, you know. Uh, was in law school, and let's see, there were at least two others selected out of the four. I think there were three of us. One Republican named Wilson and a Democrat, I can't remember his name. But uh, I don't know, Ed Arn was governor then. It's a part-time legislature. I remember I was on uh, taxation committee, equivalent to what we call Ways and Means or Finance Committee. Uh, and the chairman was a fellow named Tony Immel, who's still alive and lives in Iowa, Kansas, a uh, longtime friend. And I was only there two years, so. And I can't remember making any great speeches, but I sort of recollect that I did get up one day and disagree strongly with the governor, which you didn't do in those days. You know, if you're a Republican and you had Ed Arn, the governor, whoever, you know, you followed the party line or kept quiet. In those days, there were only two parties in Kansas. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of uh, three. Populist party taken <laughs> long before. Were you nervous? Uh, I mean, initially, or uh, oh, I think so. I had to be. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, what little I knew about politics, you know, get right on the head of a pin. So. Uh, I mean, were there uh, were there uh, old bulls there? I mean, were there people who'd been around? Who took, you know, who took you or uh, other newcomers under their wing? Did anyone? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of some of the. Yeah, the, oh, obviously there's some who've been there a long time, and uh, I can't remember how many new members we had that year. But uh, there was a Townsley from Great Bend who brother of Russ Townsley, who was later the publisher of the Russell Daily News. Uh, Will Townsley was his brother's name. Uh, he was there, and he'd been, I think he may have been in the Senate at the time, but he was kind of a big shot, and uh, uh, Senator from Kingman, Paul, hmm. hadn't thought of these names for a while, but gray-haired, senatorial looking. He was really a nice guy. Yeah. 
I don't remember who the Speaker of the House was, but uh, yeah, we were. We had a majority. The Republicans had a big majority. I don't know what the. What kinds of issues would you deal with? At, uh, I mean, I remember, I think Governor Earn was involved with the debate over the Fair Employment Practices. Yeah, I remember that. Which I, I think I supported that. I'm not, yeah, that was my first civil rights vote. Yeah, but uh, did that become law? I'm not yes, sure. Yes, it did. Yeah. Yeah, it uh, was quite a fight. Yeah, but uh, I don't know, most of us seem to me it was, we had hearings and we appropriated money and I don't remember any major yeah. thing, it just sort of jumps out and I don't even remember anything that affected Russell County that that I was active in. But Would there be the equivalent of constituent service or did you hear from Well, I went home. I'd go home a lot, you know, so yeah. I kind of liked it. Once, once you get into it, you know, if you like people, yeah. uh, I always said if you don't like people, open a mortuary, you know, and then you don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> but uh, I always kind of like give and take and shaking hands and going from farm to farm and little town to little town. <laughs> and, you know, people... People become walking billboards. I mean, they have contact with you, and they either agree with you or think you're doing a good job, or they're, they're telling other people, you know. So it's, and of course you, know, you don't do it anymore, but it used to work. You miss that? that yeah, that, that, that's, that's the part. Yeah. I keep telling Elizabeth that's what she ought to be doing, going to North Carolina Getting out of the car, forget about all the quiz programs every weekend, and walk up and down the streets and shake hands. People remembered forever. So. The uh, and of course it's during that term that I think I, my slogan. Well, that was later in Congress. Yeah, young men on the move. And then we, as we got older, we changed the young men on the move, men on the move. And I, I don't want the last one. I was still, still moving. Still moving. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's about the time that Eisenhower <clears throat> is coming under pressure from a lot of Republicans to run and uh, comes home. And Came to Abilene. I was there. there in the rain, right. Yeah, tell us about Well, I have you know, vague recollection, but, you know, Eisenhower is my, uh, even then my, you know, the person I looked up to as a great American and, and uh, been our commander in Europe. And I didn't know then all the details, how he got there and all that. But, uh, and, uh, you know, it made us very proud as Kansans that he'd come from Abilene. Lived there until he's what, 17 or 18, then went off and he really never came back. But uh, he's still calling Kansas home. And Senator Carlson was one of those. I think, I think he even made a trip to, uh, or somewhere, yeah, yeah. Uh, talked to uh, Eisenhower about being a Republican candidate. So he was uh, very much in uh, view that day. Uh, and he would be uh, your predecessor in the Senate, wouldn't he? Wouldn't right. He be the man who, who seemed right, he's the one that quietly told me that he was going to leave, and 
I should get busy <laughs> before somebody else gets busy. Well, how 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 much in advance of the election was that? I mean, oh, very, like a couple of days. Because former Governor Avery, uh, who had been in Congress, very fine guy, Bill Avery, uh, was was going to run, you know, if Carlson retired. And I think Carlson, for some reason, preferred me over him. and Because uh, we had a good relationship for both of them. You know, his hometown was about 110 miles from mine in yeah. western Kansas, so. The um, so, but, but now you didn't run for re-election to the uh, state legislature. No, one. I'm a one-termer, yeah. <laughs> and I decided, you know, I got to make some money. I mean, I think we got five dollars a day. I think it was plus two dollars per diem or something. It was some some uh, amount you couldn't live on. But uh, so John Wolk again encouraged me to run for. Called county attorney, and uh, so I had decided to do it. I think I ran against seven attorneys in my four terms as county attorney. I mean, every attorney in town I had, and when I left, they had to draft someone to take the job. <laughs> so I guess that must have been gold under the courthouse. I never found it. But I had a very tough opponent, a fellow named Dean Ostrom. I just had a note from him the other day. Uh, but uh, his father was a very prominent attorney. They were very prominent in the Methodist Church and just outstanding family. And it was a horse race. But it sounds like what you're saying is that at that level, at that time, politics is really personal. Oh, yeah. It's not ideological. It's, it's yeah. really no, you who did. you know and, and how long you've known them. And yeah, I think our, I, I think if you could say negative campaigning, I think they're running against Dean Ostrom. People said, would say, well, Bob Dole needs a job. This other guy, his dad's got plenty of money. That's how tough it got, you know. So he was rich and I was poor. So give it to this poor guy. He needs a job. And uh, it was effective. Pardon? It was effective. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> it worked. And uh, <laughs> Dean Ostrom later became general counsel of AT&T or the big phone company. So he, he did very well. Now lives in New York. So. And what what were the duties of the county attorney? Well, they were varied. You had to uh, advise your county commissioners. Three of those, generally mostly Republican. I was county attorney for eight years. You also had to uh, deal with you know we had no in my time any murder cases, but you had burglaries and you know, drunk driving and things of that kind you had to deal with. Sometimes with the justice of the peace and sometimes with the district judge. Uh, I remember arguing a case before the Supreme Court on a severance tax on oil issue where we prevailed. But uh, 
and you had to also sign uh, every check that was issued by the welfare department, you had to sign. And of course, that's where, uh, as you know, I, my, my grandparents were on that list. So once a month, I would sign the checks. And then I had, let's see, an uncle and my well, two grandfathers were, and grandmother were welfare recipients. So I think that's where there are people who think, and I'm one of them, <laughs> I've always thought that, you know, there's a, a streak of populism yeah. in you. I mean, that, that you clearly, while you may have been conservative, however you define that, yeah. and certainly conservative in economics and the like, um, long before people were talking about compassionate conservatism, yeah. that's really what, what, what you were doing. That, uh, that yeah, well, I think that and the way the people responded when I came home and wanted, you know, all the good doctors had taken off and I was still in the hospital and they went around town raising money so I could go to Chicago to Wesley Hospital to Dr. Kalikian. It showed me that uh, power really lies with the people. I mean, goodness, the people, not government. And, uh, and plus we had to a couple of times take children away from their families. That's hard to do. And, uh, well, I think you, when, when you kind of grow up seeing the real problems, you know, you don't grow up here, you grow up here. Uh, everybody knows everybody. You don't lock your doors at night. You don't take the keys out of your car. Uh, not anymore, but then... Uh, but uh, and we lived on the north side of the tracks, which is sort of the poor side, and of course then there was the other side of the tracks. We lived the block from the railroad, so the trains would wake you up every night. But, uh, and my dad is the working guy, wore his overalls to work every day for 42 years. And proud of it, he wasn't impressed and all this. My mother was, uh, I think she was one of the first women <laughs> pioneers out there selling sewing machines, giving sewing lessons, that kind of thing. So we, you know, it was, I'd say, uh, an, a an average family, average, with probably low-income family didn't know you were a low-income family. Right. Nobody told us said, we were low-income Yeah, family. I famously said, you know, the... Uh, we were, we wasn't were any poverty poor, level. The glory of America is we didn't know it. <laughs> they did, we didn't know it, so it didn't make any difference. We thought we were okay. But implicit in all that is, you look at people who work as hard as they can. Yeah. And yet, you know, whether because of a drought or whatever, you know, they, they just they can't make it. They, yeah. It isn't that yeah, poverty didn't, didn't, is a... Is a a badge of dishonor. It's that uh, yeah. there are wife's victims. And yeah, my one grandfather was a butcher, and he used to have the A-frame, and he'd these cows up there, and you know, I mean, it's terrible sight to watch. But that's how he made his money. I mean, and when times were tough, you know, people weren't buying beef. He had no job, and he, 
So uh, and my other grandfather was a tenant farmer, and of course as he got older, you know, they didn't want him anymore. So uh, I think his, I remember his landlady was Mrs. Campbell, but a uh, very nice lady, but she had to have somebody on their younger who could work the farm. And of course, you experienced the Depression. The Robert Grant Dole, good Republican name, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So. But you, you went through the Depression and the Dust Bowl. Oh, the Dust I used to deliver papers, the Salina Journal, which is a big, big paper in our part of the woods. And really, it was, it was so bad. You know, my mother would put wet towels on the windows and the doors to keep the dust from coming underneath. And I would come home from my little paper route, you know, just you know, like somebody had thrown mud at me. I mean, just dust all over. And, uh, you know, it lasted for a long time. And, of course, they'd talk about poor farmers. I mean, they didn't have any crops at all. And every little town relies on the farm economy, and there wasn't any. So it was tough, tough, I mean, how tough. did people survive? Well, I think it probably increased the welfare load. Uh, my parents moved us into the basement so they could rent out the up, upper part of the house. So, you know, people adapted or did what they had to do. But uh, we also were lucky in a way because there was, they discovered oil in Russell County even before. So that, that always was sort of a backstop. I mean, people could find jobs in oil fields, and there certain people in town were making pretty good money. We weren't part of that. But I think my dad tried a couple of things and lost both times. Do you think those experiences shaped the kind of conservative you became? Yeah, it took me a while. You know, when I first came to Congress, I think I was probably looked back on it probably a little too partisan. I mean, I came from a very conservative district, and uh, my predecessor, Wint Smith, had been oh, very, very conservative. He was a Taft man. Didn't think Eisenhower should be president. Uh, he was a big supporter of uh, Wisconsin Senator uh, Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy. Oh, yeah, he thought he'd gotten a raw deal. But he's a big, big guy, a brigadier general in the Kansas National Guard. He'd seen active service, real service, frontline service in World War II. And he sort of took a liking to me. You know, I ran against a very good guy named Keith Sebelius, who's uh, kin to the present governor, of course. Yeah. And what was his position at the time? He was a lawyer in Norton, Kansas, and been chair, been commander of the American Legion, so I had a lot of contacts with veterans. And uh, he had run against Winch Smith before a pretty close election. I think it was 
53 boats or something, very close. So everybody thought this was the guy, and of course, so when I decided to run, uh, the urging of Went Smith, because he didn't like Sibelius, because, so for obvious reasons. And this is 1960. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this is 1960. Uh, and there was another guy named Philip Doyle, D-O-Y-L-E and D-O-L-E, and no one knew, not many knew either one of us, and most of them didn't care. So we really had a, you know, a jazzed-up campaign. We served old pineapple juice. We had dolls for dole. We had covered wagons. We had round cards rolled with dole and all this stuff. Uh, had quartets and... Uh, called the, the Bobolinks, uh, and so we really, uh, and you know, we'd have young housewives in white blouses and red skirts serving dole pineapple juice as we'd go up and down the streets in all these little towns and parades. And after the election, I think Sibelius was quoted as saying, he drowned me in pineapple juice, <laughs> so, and I think we did. And I can remember when people, instead of having coffees, we'd have juices. You know, we'd go to somebody's house for not coffee, a juice. And when they couldn't find old pineapple, I can remember a lot of times where they'd scrape the label off so I wouldn't see if <laughs> they probably had to buy Libby's or something else. And the hostess didn't want me to know, I guess, uh, that it wasn't old pineapple juice, but... It really was a lot of fun. I mean, you, you, you really, uh, you know, you really, uh, and you really earn it, too, because you have to work hard. Well, I so a lot more shoe leather. A lot more shoe leather. Yeah. And it didn't have the hot, we didn't have money, for, didn't have that much television. I can't remember when, I remember going to uh, Great Bend, Kansas, the first time I'd ever even thought about being on TV, KGBG, I think it was. KGBG TV and did a little spot and I was nervous and all this stuff uh, but that was I can't remember which election but you know we didn't have the money so we had a lot of newspaper ads in those days and a lot of handouts and uh, radio ads and plus just a lot of activity every weekend or every time you could find 4-H Fair or Parade in Hoxie or wherever it was in the district, but off you'd go. In that first congressional race, we spent $19,000. Not a lot of money. Do you miss, I mean, do you think those kinds of campaigns are gone? I think they're gone. In the, in the good old days, we used to go to Hill City, Kansas, for example, where they'd have big town hall meetings, and everybody was invited. It wasn't all partisan, all Republican. And they'd do the same for the other candidate at a later time. And you had a chance to get up and talk about Graham County, Hill City, you know, what he's going to do for the wheat farmer. That's what's going to farm community. And federal aid to education was a big issue then, which I opposed. Uh, and 
So it, it, was, it was just different. I mean, I, I knew, I mean, I could walk in any town and you know, probably know at least 10 people or more. And I remember when Senator Carlson used to come to Russell, for example, he would have a fellow in front of him, one of his friends named Rusty Miller, and he would say, here comes Bob Dole. You know, so, hey, Bob, how you doing? You know, <laughs> some guy, a spotter, I guess of they course, call him a yeah. spotter. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's uh, Linda Jones. Of, oh, hi, Linda. Yeah, you know, so, he knows everybody, this Senator But he also knew a lot of people, too. But I really knew their names. I knew their names and uh, everything but their ad size. Had you, you were county attorney for eight years. Um, do you remember when during that period you really began to think about running for Congress? I mean, was, it, was that, a, that was the logical next step? Or? Yeah, I think when Smith knew when he had that very close election that he was finished. Yeah, that would have been in 58. Yeah, so he started uh, working on me. And I remember he, he would even send me extra stamps. He used to give stamps to members of Congress uh, for official business or whatever. And he would send me these stamps so I could write letters, and you know, because I didn't have any money. <laughs> I think county attorney was paid two hundred and forty-two dollars or a month or something, not very much, but. Uh, and he would, you know, invite me to go places and show up with him. And, of course, he wasn't that popular. I was going to say, that was a bit of a double-edged sword, <laughs> yeah, wasn't it, right. to, to be his protege? And the big paper was, uh, he always ran against the Solana Journal. That was the biggest paper. And he would carry it around and wave it at people, and they'd attack him every day. It's like the New York Times with Bush. But... Uh, but that's, you know, he, he, he always claimed he survived because he took on the Salina Journal. Well, I didn't particularly want to take him on. I mean, I was sort of new. <laughs> and the editor was Whitley Austin, and he, he kind of liked me. You know, he, wouldn't, he didn't want another Wint Smith. And later on, you know, initially, he became a pretty good supporter. Hmm. Now, um... Of course, you've got a family, Phyllis and uh, and Robin. Um, right. Were they active oh. in, the, in the campaign as well? Oh, they were very, yeah. And, and Phyllis, of course, had a lot of great ideas, and Robin just, you know, what was her little, my daddy for Congress or something, her little outfit, which she wore, <laughs> little apron, and... Uh, yeah, it was sort of a family affair. Just a bunch of people from Russell probably had a cadre of 30 or 40. And every weekend you could count on 20, 25 of them. And, and they had a lot of fun, you know. Yeah. In fact, I learned later that a lot of them had a lot of fun. I didn't know, but they were lacing their pineapple juice with vodka. But, you know, that <laughs> had more fun doing that, I guess. <laughs> so. But we'd always stop in maybe Osborne. They had a great restaurant there and have dinner on the way back. You know, everybody, uh, I mean, I think we won that election by the one with Sebelius and Doyle by 980-some votes. So it was close. And in those days, I assume winning the Republican primary was, was tantamount 
to uh, yeah, to winning I, the fall election. Yeah, it was a very Republican district. Uh, I don't remember who my first opponent was, Democrat, but uh, he had to work. Who was my first opponent? Good. William A. Davis. You won 59 That's when they put the two districts together. Uh, well, it says 60, but... Um, uh, you know, no, no, in 62... The oh, it was Bill Davis, was, excuse me, from Goodland. That's right. That was yeah, Bill Davis, a very, very nice guy. Later became a supporter. He was a sugar beet uh, producer in Goodland, Kansas. Uh, yeah, Bill Davis. And, uh, but it was pretty Republican. But he was a very fine, decent guy. You know, we never got personal... I think I worked harder than he did. <laughs> How much, uh, well, what was the transition like? To come Going to, to Congress? Yeah, first, to, first just to live in Washington or to come to Washington. Oh, well, you can imagine living, well, I had lived in Topeka, which is a pretty big town, gone, then to KU at Lawrence, which is bigger than Russell. Most every place is or was. But then you suddenly you're thrown into Washington, and and uh, as I told my colleagues yesterday morning, former colleagues, you know, I remember walking on the floor, was it 46 years ago, something like that. I didn't have a clue. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know where the men's room was. And... Uh, I don't think then they had these little courses where you come in, you go through this, and the newcomers have these little, you know, courses to sort of get you acquainted with what's happening. I don't remember even doing that. So it's really, uh, you always feel kind of proud that you're there, but you're not quite certain what you're supposed to do. <laughs> so so uh, you just sort of, my roommate across the hall was Don Rumsfeld in the mm. Cannon Building, and uh, I, I wasn't first term. He came later, two years later. But uh, anyway, the thing I remember about that, as you know, is that Eisenhower was just leaving the White House as we were coming, and I had a chance to get my picture taken, which is on the wall there with Eisenhower at the White House, and then later he invited a whole freshman class to come to Gettysburg, where he spent about three hours, a personal tour of the battlefield, gave us lunch, put us on the bus, and waved goodbye, which is still one of the most memorable events, you know, that I can remember. I mean, whether you're Democrat or Republican, you still liked Ike, and Democrats probably liked him because he wasn't there any longer, and but we disliked him, and uh, and he was still very impressive at that age. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, and I remember visiting with him too in one of his last illnesses at Walter Reed. So, and I've been in the Eisenhower suite at Walter Reed as a patient, where there are a couple of uh, his paintings on the wall. And he's a pretty good painter. I think one was with Churchill. Yeah. So, anyway, you know, the, your first, the house was, uh, I thought we were in the 
permanent minority Republicans. I don't remember how many we had, 160-some, maybe 170. And Rayburn was the first speaker. And he used to, if you look at the speaker's chair in those days, he used to dig his nails into the, you could see where he, I guess it's tension or whatever. But he's very quiet, reserved. I'm not sure he ever knew I was in the Congress. But because you didn't jump up in those days, first week, and start, you know, espousing some great theory or some great legislation. You could make one-minute speeches. That's probably about all I ever did. But uh, then John McCormack followed Rayburn. Straight, tall, very nice man. Uh, and, of course, he had his problem with the Southern conservatives. So, and Yeah, because supposedly, although clearly you were in a party minority, there were times when ideologically... Obviously, Republicans would make common calls. Yeah, like sixty-four Civil Rights Act. You know, many of us voted for it. Oh, sure. Wouldn't have passed because it had all the Democrats in the South against it. Well, that's true, of course. Yeah. So even then, we had, uh, you know, bipartisanship. But it went both ways. I mean, my point is that there, you're absolutely right. If it hadn't been for Republican votes, civil rights bills would not have passed. But on a lot of economic and other issues, there was this sort of coalition between most Republicans and a lot of Southern Democrats. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, and uh, of course, my big coming from a pretty much rural district, except for Salina, but even they, they had a lot of elevators and a lot of people who dealt with farmers out in western Kansas. So it was a big issue. Agriculture was. So I became, got on the House Ag Committee, which was almost a necessity. I mean, I had to show the flag for that district. And uh, stayed on the Ag Committee all through the House and all through the Senate. So I think I had 35 and a half years on the Ag Committee. And even if you're asleep, you're going to learn something in 35 and a half years. So I got to be a pretty good person on egg, but... Uh, Charlie Halleck was the Republican leader when, they, when, you, when you arrived. Joe Martin was still around. Yeah. He'd been deposed, and of course Halleck would be deposed. Bill Martin used to, I think he sat in the third row back, and he would just sort of sit there, never say much, but he'd very pleasant. And Charlie Halleck, of course, was up, ended by... President Ford, with the help of three Kansas votes, uh, which he never forgot, as you know. And uh, what was Halleck? I mean, what was Halleck like uh, as a? Halleck was, you know, he's an excellent speaker. I mean, he could get you to raw, raw, raw. Of course, we didn't have any troops. You know, <laughs> he's a great speech. But what do we do now? We don't have the votes. But he also had a little tippling problem. Was that something, <laughs> I don't want to exaggerate, but, but yeah. more common in those days, do you think, maybe than, than 40 years later? Just because people didn't... Yeah, because I can, I can only remember in the Senate, 
and all the time I was there, and particularly when in the leadership, you have to kind of watch those things, maybe seeing two or three senators who should have been home. And I think in the early days, you know, they used to do it more. I mean, Charlie always had happy hours, you know, in his office. I, I wouldn't let that, I kept it out of my office. If they want to have a party, go somewhere else. But, uh, and I don't think they, you know, anything evil about it. I think they yeah. just figured, well, it's 5 o'clock. Charlie had that much to be happy about. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. No. I guess if you're in the minority, you were drinking because you didn't have the votes. And if you're in the majority, you were happy. So, And there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of friends, all, all the, People always talk about all the confrontation, but there's always people who become friends across the aisle. I don't care how bad it looks. But. It, it clearly, it's interesting because that gets to the to the polarized nature of the, of the Congress today. I mean, everyone talks about. I heard President Ford so many times talk about how radically different the climate was, and part of it was you just spent more time together. Or, um, well, particularly if you're on a committee and uh, you got to really know people like Graham Purcell, who was just a great guy from Texas, uh, later became a federal judge, uh, and Robert Pogue from Waco, Texas, probably the hardest working guy I ever knew, was our ag chairman. Well, when you went on a trip with him, I remember going to India with Johnson sent us there with uh, Bob Pogue, myself, and Senator Jack Miller from Iowa. And Pogue never stopped. I mean, I was I was 20 years younger, and I was <laughs> worn out, so it wasn't a junket when it went, when he. But yeah, they were just good people. Uh, the name of the chairman when I first got there from North Carolina. Always had a cigarette holder. He used to bring more furniture back on overseas trips. We had some program where you could use certain funds to spend. <laughs> and in those days, he used to, you know, bring the cash into the committee. I remember being in the, <laughs> I think her name was Dorothy, the secretary, and somebody came in. You know, who do I give this money to? I said, well, what? Not, not, not right now. Wait a minute. Some guy had a bag of cash. He wanted to give it to the chairman. But uh, we're I don't think that happens anymore. <laughs> I was going to say, what was the, were, you, were you shocked uh, by anything you saw? Surprised? Well, it was much different in those days because even then, you know, if you're a lobbyist, you're out there in front and you're passing up amendments to, to the members. I assume I got some. You know, see if you can't slip this in somewhere. Or, no, we don't want that. Do this. And, you know, nobody saw anything wrong with it. I mean, you, it was sort of out in the open. It wasn't somebody sneaking it under the door or something. They just pass it up. Uh, now, of course, you'd probably be shot or executed, whatever. But, uh, uh, it was more convivial or whatever the word is. And, yeah. uh, but I remember, uh, oh, the name starts with a C, chairman. 
had a, set, a congressman named Bass from Tennessee. He was called Big Mouth Bass. And then there was Perkins Bass from New Hampshire. He was known as Little Mouth Bass. And Bass from Tennessee, Chairman, not Coolidge, but I'll think of it, Cooley, Chairman Cooley, didn't really care for him. He didn't know he was a Democrat. And he used to carry on, because Cooley wouldn't recognize him. He'd keep holding up his hand. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, he said, shut up. I'll recognize you when I get ready. So, But, uh, you know, we had that kind of stuff in the committee. But, yeah. but I mean, just there was a sense that you, you socialized across party lines much more than is the case today. Um, and, you also, and you had party structures. I mean, in a sense, people were much more accountable whether it was to a committee chairman or the party yeah. itself. Yeah, we didn't That's have all, all the staff down. either. You know, we had what they call professional staff, which meant they're all Democrats, you know. And we weren't entitled to any staff. I mean, these are staff. These people serve it. And they were good. Don't misunderstand me. But they weren't. And it wasn't until uh, Jiminy, I, I got into the Senate and uh, in the Finance Committee, we finally did, had one Republican staffer and, and you know, it's changed a lot now, but uh, I, I, I think there was a feeling then in the 60s that Democrats were going to be in charge forever, and I think many of us sort of accepted it, figured, well, we're just sort of here for the ride, maybe we get, for good boys, we get an amendment adopted, you know, won't get your name on any bill that passes, you know, that's not going to happen, so... Uh, it's, it's changed a lot. I mean, I think it's opened up more, and there are more opportunities. Obviously, m members speak out more earlier. You know. Now, did you go home regularly? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was. And I didn't want to miss a vote. I think I had a 100% voting record for I don't know how many years. I was so afraid to miss a vote. But I... I still got home, I think the first couple of years I was home huh, every other weekend at least. TWA, I about wore them out. They, they wore me out. They're, even, they're gone now. But uh, and Now, did the Congress pay for that travel? or um, they'd, they'd pay for so many trips, and the others we'd have to take out a campaign funds. And once you're there, you can, you know, in those days, a $500 contribution was, boy, I remember getting a $500 contribution with a fellow named Bob Williams from Wichita, an oil man. I thought, gee, me, $500. And uh, that was a lot of money. That'd be equivalent now to what, probably five, ten thousand dollars $10,000. You didn't get too many of those, by the way. But, uh, Did he want anything? Pardon? Did he want anything? Not really. He just a nice. He later moved into the Watergate and was my next door neighbor. Years later, yeah. I'm not even sure he's alive anymore. But uh, you can you pretty easily spot the people who want something. You know, it's always. And then you always get some money after the election. People saying, you know, I've, <laughs> I've had this in my. You know, I've been meaning to send this to you for months. <laughs> After you win, of course, 
Uh, if you lose, they keep it. But uh, there was a few of those who get the message a little late, but they want to be remembered. But now, how you must have had a very small staff. Oh, I think we had seven. A fellow named Bill Katz was my AA, and he was from Phillips County, probably one of the most Republican counties in Kansas, next to Norton maybe. But uh, very fine, decent guy. He had been there with Wint Smith. And I had an Armenian, uh, Angelian or something, uh, who was, and of course, she knew all about Dr. Kalikian and the operations and all that stuff. So I had a very small staff. I don't think I had anybody in Kansas. I may have had, but I don't. I was a Kansas guy. I was, and of course I was young then, so it didn't bother me any. So. And you answered all the mail yourself. Well, answered all the mail myself. Cats would sometimes, uh, you know, send in some samples. It's always easy to edit, as you know. It's somebody else's stuff. You know, this, this, this. But uh, I can't think. He used to have one phrase that I never cared for, and I can't remember it now, but I used to cross it out. He'd put it in every time. I'd take it out every time. But uh, but he was the kind of guy that never made an enemy. You know, you walk into your office, and Bill Katz was there, and it just made you feel at home. Give you a little. I remember when I got here, we wrote the... Uh, Dole Company in Hawaii saying, you know, we name like mine, we thought it'd be great to serve Dole pineapple juice in the office, and maybe you'd like to provide it. Da da da. I think our response was they sent us a price list. <laughs> <laughs> so I, at that point, my profile wasn't going to wasn't very high, and they didn't send a reason to waste any pineapple juice. But uh, did you? I, I mean, what, a, a freshman congressman in those days must have been pretty much at the bottom of the ladder. Huh? Yeah, I was the last one. I think I was number fourteen on our side on the ag committee, very last. I mean, if we had fourteen, whatever it was, I was last. And uh, you know they. You have a hearing, and they take turns. Chairman first, the ranking member, and I go this. And the time they got to me, there nobody left. You know, but if you stayed long enough, in those days you didn't just duck in and out like they do now. Because we didn't keep track of everybody's records, trying to catch them missing a committee so we can use it in the campaign. Uh, but generally, you'd go to the hearing, just plan to spend if it's two hours, three hours, you'd be there all day. That's changed a lot, too, because people have so many committees. They have other things. Ten percent of them are running for president in the Senate. So, this, The seniority system governed in those days. I mean, it's terrible until you get some of it. Well, I was going to say, what was good about the seniority system? It's having it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, no, it's... It, 
Yeah, we, you know, when you first get there, you think it's a, well, when you first get there, you don't know what's going on. I mean, it takes you a, a term to even know what's cooking. But when you've been there a couple of terms, you can think, well, you know, why is that guy? I'm, I'm as smart as he is, and he's up here, and I'm way down here. Well, he's been there 18 years or 10 years, and uh, I haven't thought of any better way to fix it. But, uh, you know, in the Senate, we finally, in the House, some degree, we limited how long you could be chairman of committee. So you could cut off the senior members. I'm not sure that was such a great idea. Slade Gorton from Washington's idea, more I think, they ex exempted the leader, but everybody else. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's, maybe not. But it seemed to me it's like any other job. One thing good about it is when you really get into something and get to know it, you know you're you're very valuable. And you have to give that up just because you've been there eight years and I've only been there two years. I mean, you know, it's, you can argue either way. Were there some members who were, who were too senior? <laughs> were there people who, who really maybe in the private sector would have been put out to pasture but uh, were still in Congress? Oh, yeah, I remember a, senator, a congressman from Iowa who was there when the Puerto Ricans invaded the, you know, the gallery and shot up the house floor, and he was had a wound in the buttocks. And he used to get after us, the younger members. He, he said, "When I go home, it's an event." You know, in other words, you guys are running back and forth like, like errand boys. When I go home, it's a big event. What's his name Ben something. He finally got beat, <laughs> but he had a badge of honor that carried, carried him through several elections. <laughs> Wounded in action, but uh, great. We had some great people. Ben Rifle, a Native American from South Dakota, is a Republican, and is. R-E-I-F-E-L, of course, you can imagine his slogan was a straight shooter, you know. And uh, in fact, they're writing a book about him. I've got to call the author one of these days. Just the nicest guy in the world, and I don't know, he wasn't, I'd say he was a moderate. And there weren't too many moderates in those days. You know, Don, Don Regal was a moderate. The party got too conservative for him, so he went, left the party and became a Democrat. Uh, I was there when we had one lonely member from Texas in the House named Bruce Alger, sort of macho man, you know, from Dallas. He was the one Republican out of, I don't know what, how many they had, 18, 19? So you see all these changes and how the South changed, and I remember uh, Senator Smith, very nice courtly gentleman from Virginia, but anti-civil rights, and and he liked me. He used to say, you know, Bob, you don't understand. You don't have m many blacks living in your in Russell, Kansas. You don't understand the problems. 
you shouldn't be voting for this bill. I mean, you've got to understand, you know, on this stuff. And I don't think he was a bad person. I think he really believed that. I guess when you're raised that way, I guess you... But we had about four black families. There were five or six in Russell, Kansas. You know, all good people and one guy about my age, Warren Cooksey, I uh, later became a Republican county commissioner. We used to play together and go to, I'd go to his house, he'd come to our house. I mean, uh, so I didn't seem to be a big problem. You have much contact with JFK? Not much. I remember going to the Christmas party and I remember there's a picture back here with me and Congressman Green from New York. I can't remember remember what we were doing there, but uh, to say I really knew Kennedy would... Because be, he would have been your, your contemporary, yeah. fellow World War II yeah. veteran. You once told me a story, I think, maybe it was around the time of the inauguration, when you, were, you said to Rosemary, I think you went to the White House for a party, and... Uh, you said something affected uh, double parking or something. Or enjoy it well. Enjoy it well. Last. I don't know. But I can't remember. I remember. Yeah, was, I remember Phyllis <laughs> and I going there. We. Oh. It was a big event, and uh, was that the first time you'd been in the White House? Yep, I think so. I used to go down. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes they wouldn't let your visitors in. You only had a quota. But if you came with them, they couldn't keep you out. So I used to have bus loads from Kansas, and I'd meet the bus at the White House. I was probably a real pain in the rear. But those people never forgot it when they got home. So, uh, But, uh, yeah, I think that was probably my – well, no, I had been in the White House for my picture with Ike. Were you campaigning constantly? I mean, in those days, I mean, just as a freshman, um, you were going to have re redistricting in 62, didn't you? I mean, that was the, the race with Floyd Breeding. Oh, Floyd Breeding, yeah. Uh, and, um, well, what were, what were the circumstances of the, of the Oh, Senate? that was a tough race because he was a very popular Democrat and uh, had a lot of support in his district and they put our two districts together. I remember a, a picture in Time magazine and showed him walking out of a building above said breeding headquarters. <laughs> I remember that. So, but, uh, yeah, he was tough. And, uh, that was he an incumbent congressman? Yeah. So we glared at each other for a couple of years and I, and I was, I think he had been there at least one term. So he was in his second, he was more seasoned than I was. So when you go there knowing your district's going to disappear in two years, you know, that's why you're on the plane every weekend. You're trying to get into Hutchison or Dodge City or some of these new territories. Uh, and uh, it was, 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 it was
is, you know, we had some tough congressional races because the next in 64 you had Goldwater on the ticket. Yeah, but now you've been a Goldwater supporter, haven't you? Oh, I was one of the 73, I think, House Republicans who he came over to meet with. And, uh, yeah, I supported Goldwater. He wasn't very popular in our district because of his position on farm subsidies. So, but anyway, the, that was a very close race. Then you have some easy ones too. So, what kind of what kind of relationship did you have with the press in those days? And what was the press? I mean, I, I imagine the D.C. press didn't pay a whole lot of attention to a no. to a young congressman. But what about back in Kansas? I got a little attention. There was a guy named Billy Saul Estes, a friend of LBJ's, who got into big grain elevator scandal in Texas. He was skimming millions of dollars from the government. And Wes Roberts, Pat Roberts' father, who had been national chairman, had to be eased out because of some little something. And another guy from North Dakota, Jimmy, they were sort of my coaches. And we we went after Billy Saul Estes. We sent little bags of wheat around to every member of Congress with <laughs> a little note on it. We had a lot of... And you know, I got picked up in the press a little bit, but uh, most of the time it'd be, in those days you relied on press releases. You know, you put out a press release, today Bob Dole met with this group, or Bob Dole thought he, this is what his position was, or whatever. And they get picked up, and then you'd work on your weekly papers, come out once a week and be sure you had a little column there. And that was about it. I mean, you maybe get on radio, but it's changed, you know. So, but I think the Kansas City Star had a fellow there named Joe Lastelick, and before him, a fellow named Williams, I think, was when I was in the house, who was a good friend of mine. He'd mention my name now and then, you know. Stick it in the store. It didn't mean anything. And you sent out a lot of cookbooks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we sent out a lot of cookbooks and uh, baby books and anniversary letters. And I remember once we sent a baby book instead of the anniversary letter to a couple. <laughs> so they were pleased, but... <laughs> <laughs> so those little mistakes happen. I, I thought for kind of a, you know, sort of a one-man show, we were putting out a lot of stuff. But I assume others were doing the same thing. Because even then, although we didn't know what public relation really was, we knew that get your name out there and people see it on something coming in the mail or knocking on their door or being in their hometown, they're going to at least think this, this guy's working. You know, they, I may not agree with everything, but he, 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 he sure works at it. So, And I worked hard at it. I mean, I don't... 
And then, let's see, 60, yeah, 60. What was, what was constituent service in, in, in those days? I mean, in the House, what? Uh, Just what being sure, we sort of had a rule that the letter came in on Monday, there had to be an answer by Wednesday. And even if you had to write and say, you know, I've submitted your request to the IRS, whatever, get them a response. Don't leave them hanging them out there until you get the response from the agent. It may take months. And the worst thing you can have is somebody out there saying, you never answered my letter. And we made mistakes, and we didn't do it. And people get mad. You go around their home, oh, I never heard from you. And they were probably right. Somebody... But that, you know, meeting the people who came, being sure you saw every cans and you could get your hands on. I used to go out in the hall and look for them. When I was leader in the Senate, I'd go out in the hallway and pull them in. But, uh, I mean, people come all the way back here, and they're generally small businessmen. They're not a lot of rich people from 6th District to Kansas or even the 1st District. And they like to get their picture on the steps, and people used to accuse me of having an office on the steps. <laughs> That's where I spent a lot of my time. Uh, but it pays off. I mean, it. Yeah. Do you remember where you were on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, or how you first heard the news? Of I think I was in the. Seeing me, I was in the house. Cloakroom. And on the Martin Luther King matter, I was on the way to Kansas, and I heard about it in Chicago, and and came back. But uh, I'm not positive. Mm. And Lyndon Johnson becomes president. Um, had you had any contact with uh, with Johnson during his vice presidency, or not really? Yeah. I mean, I heard about what a powerful guy he was, and and uh, what a great Senate leader he was, and you know, I'd seen him from a distance, but first time I ever really saw him was when this India trip, and we went down there, and he thanked us for going or so. It didn't last very long. And then I've read Master of the Senate, but of course he had 60-some votes. I mean, he could be a master of <laughs> most anything. You know, I have to ask you, because obviously we're jumping out of sequence here, but <clears throat> you hear about what a legendary figure he was and what yeah. a uh, dominant figure he was in the Senate. Um, and I asked Howard Baker about this the other day, and it doesn't seem like any of his successors uh, were were able to exercise that kind of job. What what was it, either about Johnson or the rules or the culture, um, that was different from when you held the job? Well, the numbers, <laughs> one thing. And he had Everett Dirksen. You know, they worked a lot, particularly on civil rights stuff. And then he was able to convince Hubert Humphrey to, you know, he got Hubert Humphrey on his side, and uh, particularly on the civil rights legislation. And he finally took on the Southerners, you know, Richard Russell. I mean, he finally realized that 
something's got to give. And uh, I don't know when he made this, of course, Johnson made the statement, we shall overcome, I think, in one of the... In 65, yeah. after Selma, yeah. on the Voting Rights Act, joint session of yeah. Congress. Yeah. So... Now, by right. that I, time... I probably had that wrong yesterday. I, yeah, I thought that was, that was before the 64 Act. It was 65. Yeah. By yeah. that time, of course, you've had a, a shift in your own party, as you mentioned earlier. The, the story of how... Charlie Halleck was deposed. Yeah. What, what, yeah. What, and, uh, well, we had this great guy, a young guy from Michigan who was everybody's friend, Jerry Ford. And he was on the uh, Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. And, of course, knew everything about every defense thing. He really had the finger on the button. And a lot of members, of course, had an interest in that. I had Fort Riley and some other things in Kansas. Not that I remember ever bothering him on it, but... And I think there was a feeling, well, Bob Griffin was sort of the leader of the revolt. He was a congressman from, from Michigan. Pardon? He was a congressman yeah. from Michigan. Yeah. Time. Good guy. And... Uh, Al Cedarberg, another congressman from Michigan. And we had, uh, I think, it, just a feeling maybe, it, it, I don't know whether it was so much Charlie Alex drinking, but that's what you hear, but I think it's that maybe it's time for, you know, Charlie to get a fresh face. And because, you know, we were pretty well stuck. You know, they had the Evan Charlie show and all that stuff, but uh, they didn't get much press. So it, I, I don't know all the inner workings because we got into it rather late when it was getting very, very close. And and uh, what, what was the whip's name? Les, uh, Les Aarons. From Illinois, and all he worried about was the price of corn. He said, boy, it's a dollar seven a day or it's, Dollar sixteen today. He every day he'd tell what the price of corn was, and he was such a nice guy. And you know, I'd never met a nicer guy. And he was obviously for he loved like Ford, but he loyal to Halleck. And he kept working on me and Shriver and Bob Ellsworth, Scubitz. But we finally decided we're going to vote for a new face. Somebody was sort of not quite our generation, but close. Yeah, I, I've often wondered whether, in fact, there was it was that more than anything else. There was a generational. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it. No, I don't think. But you know, you could already look Charlie Halleck in the face for a few days because you knew you, he, you knew he knew because they they had the votes. They knew where the votes were. Well, you never know for certain when you're dealing with members. Do I, people, yeah, do people lie? I mean, a lot people. of people, uh, I don't know they lie, they just don't tell you the truth. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, they shade, they shade the truth, you know. You know I'm for you, you know, I hope, good luck, you know, I, I, that's an I, good luck is nothing. So, uh, 
Buddy got over it and, I don't know, did Halleck retire then or did he, when he ran again or not? Yeah, you know, that would have been 66. I think he may have retired. Yeah. It hurt, it really hurt, but you know, again, it turned out to be a good move. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, you know, he had done it to Joe Martin. Yeah. So there was a, there was a precedent at least. Probably why Joe Martin was always so somber. He never gotten over it. Yeah. Oh, it had been majority leader for one term. Yeah. On eighty third. Yeah, I mean during that first Eisenhower. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't last long, but. <laughs> and Don Rumsfeld was part of that effort, wasn't he? As well. Uh, to, yeah, uh, probably was, because he arrived in 63. Right. That's when he became my neighbor. And he wanted me to run. He kept trying to get me to run for some leadership office in the House. And I, I was. You know, I, I didn't think I could handle it. I was scared. I said, no, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. And he's, oh, come on, come on. You can. So we became pretty good friends. Hmm. And we'd always walk back and forth to vote. And his, well, was right across the aisle, I'd go over there and he'd come over to my place. And very smart, very bright. In a very Republican district, I think his predecessor had been Mrs. Church. Who won by 70, 80 percent. So. Was he very conservative? Yeah. Very conservative. So was uh, uh, John, 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 the, Renf the independent. John Anderson. Anderson. I've been to Rockford a couple, three times. Oh, he was very, very conservative. Then he got this bug later on. and. Yeah. Used to see him at uh, church now and then, but I haven't seen him for a while. Of course, I haven't been there since. By the way, <laughs> he's probably been there. <laughs> now, '64 was your last really tough house race, and that presumably was because of the Goldwater oh. disaster. I don't know what I won by, but it wasn't much. I think it's fifty-one forty-nine. Yeah. When did it dawn on you that Goldwater was going to be a disaster? I mean, were you at the were you at the convention, the '64 convention? Oh yeah, I was wearing a big Taft button for VP. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, still got it. I think. Well, somewhere. you were a conservative. <laughs> yeah. That. Do you, do you remember that night, the Tuesday night, when uh, when Rockefeller? Oh, the big was the big hullabaloo. Yeah, I, I, I remember it vaguely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember Goldwater being up on top of the hill, you know, remember which hotel it was. Yeah, the Fairmount or the Mark. Yeah, I think so. And I think I, some of us got in there and visited with him a minute or two. But uh, I don't know. He'd, I think that one ad that Johnson had with the, country blowing up, you know, the, who do you want your hand on the button? Boy, the little girl with a daisy or whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. If 
powerful stuff. But also remember, even at the, at, in his acceptance speech, when he had the famous line about extremism, you know, in the defense of liberty is not yeah. vice, moderation. Yeah. <laughs> the story is Richard Nixon at that point turned to him and said, oh, my God, he's going to run his gold water. Because <laughs> 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 I always thought most people didn't understand what he was talking about. But they made it pretty clear later, I mean, in their ads and stuff. But we did pick up some seats in Alabama that year, some house seats, Georgia. Well, that's true. Goldwater is a transitional figure in terms of yeah. uh, poaching on the old South. Yeah, and he, can, you know, he was quite conservative in those days, but in his later years, he was moving the other way. Yeah, how did he? Because you obviously got to know him well. He used to be pretty tough, and particularly in his last term, he carried a cane around, and he'd. And if you didn't stay away, he'd whop you with that cane. If things weren't quite going the way he wanted them, and crusty, he even endorsed I think Sam Nunn for president. I mean, Democrat. I mean, he he was pretty unpredictable there. But but I went out to visit him. I remember when I was running. Met with him in Arizona, and he became my honorary chairman. All that stuff. But he was still he was very popular. You know. More popular when he was more like everybody. Once you're out of office, your numbers go up. People forget why they didn't like you. But uh, I see right now Bush and Congress are tied at 35 each. So. <laughs> the um, when did you decide you wanted to be a senator? Uh, I think I decided that. Well, I, I wasn't quite as bad as some people to keep. You can almost, some of these House members go over and check on their senator every week and say, how are you feeling? <laughs> you don't look so good. You know, hoping maybe they're going to retire. You know, I, I, uh, I had a senator from North Carolina, a Republican, and this guy in the House drive him crazy. But anyway, uh I think probably in 66, there was some evidence that Carlson might step down. I don't remember how old he was when he stepped down, but, uh, and he could have stayed there, you know, forever. I mean, he's very low key and never, he kept his good car here, and he, at home, he had a much older car he campaigned in, so. <laughs> so. But just a great guy, and he started the Senate prayer breakfast, initiated that, and uh, and I, I sort of got a heads up. He didn't tell me definitely until at least a few days or a few weeks before. He kind of swore me to secrecy, as I remember, but he said, you know, if I were you, I think I would start looking around the state. I, I don't know if he ever told me he was going to not run, but he made it pretty clear he wasn't going to run. So. This would be a good time. If you could sort of describe to people who know nothing about it the kind of political landscape of Kansas, because I sense even then 
the Republican Party had a conservative and a, and a, and a moderate to liberal wing. And did Carlson and Pearson represent those wings, or is it more complicated than that? Carlson had a, a good end with federal employees. He was chairman of the committee at the time that did, dealt with federal employees. So he had some of that union support and, and postal employees and things like mm -hmm. that most Republicans didn't have. But otherwise, he was pretty, pretty conservative. And uh, of course, Andy Shuppel, who was there for most of Carlson's time, was from Nest City, was even more conservative. And he, I, I remember him so well. He would come to the Russell Kiwanis Club. I remember one time, and he put his watch down on, you know, and he'd stand there very straight. You know, looks like a senator. And now let me tell you what's going on in Washington. Everybody would, you know. And then he proceeded to tell us what's going on in Washington. But uh, I remembered his funeral, his wife turning to me and said something about, you know, don't work so hard. So the day after you're gone, nobody cares. You know, she felt pretty bad about it. But anyway, Carlson obviously quietly sent the word around that you know, Bob Dole would be a good successor. And Bill Avery was, was a, I think I won fairly handily in the primary. But what were the divisions? What would you, I mean, the geographical, ideological, or it really didn't have any difference. Uh, really? We're both about, if you compare our voting records, I think they'd probably be 95%. Uh, he was a farmer from Wakefield, Kansas, and had been governor. Uh, he was a good congressman. In those days, the big thing in Kansas was who would be the first member of Congress to announce there'd be plenty of boxcars for harvest, you know. I would call Union Pacific, and he would call Union Pacific. Can't be sure we have boxcars. My dad used to need boxcars in the grain elevator. And uh, there's always a shortage of boxcars, which meant you had to pile it on the ground, and it deteriorates and all that stuff. So it was always a contest between me and Avery, even in Congress. <laughs> Who's going to announce first that boxcars are coming? You know, that was a big deal. But we liked each other. It wasn't anything personal, uh, but again, uh, explain that because I think probably today people would find that hard to believe. Yeah, that, you know that, that there was a time when you could run an intense. Yeah, I, I don't. I may have said things that I don't remember anything very. I don't think he's any very bad about me. Uh, and of course, there were other. Garner Shriver was in Congress from Wichita, and he kind of liked to be in the Senate too. Bob Ellsworth, of course, had opted to run against Pearson and lost. Uh, he, he could have liked, liked to be in the Senate, too. But when I got out there, I think within three days, I'd covered half the state. I'd been in every 
I started not in western Kansas, but everywhere else, in southeast and other places, and lining up county chairman, getting organized, and uh, it just had a lot of support. I mean, people were receptive, and and it, you know, I'd been a good Republican, da-da-da. You so, had a, a, a pretty good statewide profile by that time? Yeah. I mean, I always showed up for Kansas Day and went to all the meetings. And uh, I didn't go around to other districts much, but uh, and we had, you know, once uh, the other members decided not to run, I was sort of there, like Joe Skubitz, fifth district, and he was very popular, and he didn't get in an open fight, but he kind of let his people know that, you know, Bob's a good friend of mine, da-da-da. <laughs> Did the local organizations mean more in those days? Was there more party organization uh, to cultivate at, it, the, at the grassroots level? I mean, either county or a local oh, yeah, we had, party apparatus. No, we had an apparatus, yeah. We had, in some places, you know, let's, let's face it, and probably every state, county chairman, some of them don't do anything. They don't even want the job, but they miss the meeting and suddenly they're elected. And uh, so we, that Dole chairman, Dole for Senate chairman, who would always, in our theory, was they, they'll work, work with the county chairman. The chairman doesn't have to take sides in a primary. We understand you don't want to do that. And so we had our own organization in nearly every county, even though in some counties it County chairman was openly for us, or maybe openly against us. But uh, yeah, it was. I was beginning to learn then how important it is to have an organization and somebody there to have things ready when you came, and and uh, you know. Yeah, I assume you never had an advance man before '68. No, I'm not even sure I had one in '68, but. <laughs> We at least had some field people out there, and they would have my if I was going to go to Parsons, they'd know what I was going to do. If I was going to go to Hutchison or whatever, the state fair, uh, and I'd always have people with me, so we'd take down names of people we met and send them a note when we got back, all that stuff, and uh, which I still do. It's hard to break the habit, but. Uh, it, it was different. And how does the state divide? I mean, sort of give us a, a kind of a primer on, you know, the Kansas political landscape. Well, it's West. A, the West is pretty Republican. And then you've got the big, big area, sort of the Johnson County, the outside Kansas City area is pretty Republican. Southeast Kansas is pretty tough for, you know, it, it, it's split. And Democrats have had successes there. Wichita, at one time, was pretty Democratic, but the present congressman has changed that a lot, and it's become more conservative. Uh, we also have Democratic governor, who's changed a lot. We have now two Democratic members of Congress out of four, where we never had you know, any. So. Uh, 
let me say 40 years ago. What's I mean, the book? Assume... What's the matter with Kansas? Have you read it? No, I haven't. Yeah. Well, if it's too conservative, that was the matter with it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I assume within the Republican Party, there was kind of a cultural divide, oh. wasn't there, between, say, Johnson County and... We have two Republican parties now, unfortunately. We have the one... Uh, it's all about abortion. That's the key thing. It's not about spending or things you think you ought to, where you have some agreement. But it's pro-life, pro-choice, particularly in a place like Johnson County where you have Republicans. We had the county attorney there change parties. Now he's the attorney general. We had the state chairman of our party switch, and he's now lieutenant governor. I mean, Another lady switched. She's now a member of Congress. You know, you can't have two Republican parties and one other party. You can't win. And we've got people. In fact, I've been talking to the director how we can bring it back together. You know, forget about. I mean, Casabom and I didn't agree on. That uh, issue, we never made a big deal of it. And that, that raises, it's funny, because I remember talking to President Ford about this, because I think in many ways you were very similar in this. <clears throat> it's generational, it's cultural. There was a different kind of conservatism 40 years ago. I mean, it was on economics, America's role in the world, you know, coming out of World War II. Uh, but there was also this kind of, what I call, you know, just leave me alone. Conservatism, which is there are certain issues, abortion being one of them, that you know, I'm not sure I, I want to single issue political stuff. issues. Yeah. Um, there's a you know, government should stay out of the boardroom and the classroom and the bedroom, and those yeah. are, those are just not issues, yeah. to, you know, to build a political party around. But clearly, during the course of your career, yeah. the social conservatives have become much more powerful, and the old economic... They're starting to fade a little, though, I think. Uh, you know, they never trusted me in 96, so, you know, the Robertsons and the focus on the family, Dobson, and uh, even though my voting record was all right, they, they knew I was reasonable. <laughs> I guess at the time, I'd listen to somebody else's view uh, and not... I didn't want to make it a big issue. You know, that's all I want to talk about. One issue, one issue, one issue. And Giuliani's finding that out now. I mean, you know, they get you on one issue and then they... But, uh, and we lived through that in the 74 campaign with Bill Roy. I mean, that was the first time that abortion had become a national issue because he was a doctor and apparently had allegedly performed abortions. Oh, and some of the people that were supporting me carrying around the fetus in a jar and all this stuff and running these ads. Uh, was it vote for death, Bill Roy, vote for life, Bob Doe? I mean, not with our encouragement, but uh, so that, because then the national press got interested in that race and they were out there became a big issue, but... Uh, I assume you didn't have that much national press in 68. I mean... Uh, I don't think when uh, 
I don't think Nixon ever had to answer the question on abortion, did he? Did it ever come up that Nixon ran for president? That's a good question. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't think it ever came up. And, did it come up in 76? Well, of course, you'd had the, uh, the, the Roll court decision in 73. I don't, know how, <coughs> I don't know how Ford handled it. He support Ford was pro-choice. Yeah. He's the last Republican nominee to be yeah. pro-choice. So he supported the decision. Yeah. And, of course, out of office became more outspoken, I think with a little help from Mrs. Ford. But uh, but that didn't seem to that, – that wasn't the big impact. It was the party. Yeah, yeah. In 68, did you, when you were running against Avery and going into Johnson County, did you feel any kind of disadvantage? I mean, just because, you know, you were Western – uh, yeah, I had to get acquainted. You know, I'd never been in sort of the Kansas City area where I don't know what percent of the people live in that slice, big percent of the people. I knew Wichita pretty well, but I, so I had to go down and, and even then we had about, you know, we had one very, very, very conser- conservative group. And uh, other people, just Republicans, you know, conservative and anti-tax, anti-spending, except for their causes. And uh, there weren't many farmers there. I always did very well with farmers. But you get into Johnson County, it's a big urban area, exurbs or whatever they call it. Were the, were the halls significant players? At that point, and I think the halls may have helped me a little fundraising. Um, I, I'd have to check that, but because they probably knew Avery well too. But uh, and of course, the, the elder hall been a great friend of Eisenhower's, you know. But uh, did you have any debates in the '68 race? Do you ever debate Avery? Well, if we did, it wasn't more than once. Yeah. Buy much television? Or is that the, I'm trying to think what our how much money we raised. Uh, yeah, I think we had some television. I, you know, again, I would remember what, what we were talking about. I, I think uh, I won because I was just perceived as, you know. I, you know, it's tough to be governor. You know, when you're governor of a state, you're always going to upset people. I don't care where. And Bill Avery had been governor, and and I had the advantage. I hadn't lost an election, and 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 I and he was a hard worker too. We both worked hard, but I thought my own area was in pretty good shape out west, which which it was. And if I was going to win, I had to get into Topeka and Johnson County and Crawford County down southeast, Sedgwick County, Wichita. So we spent a lot of our time there. Uh, Vietnam was clearly a Vietnam was, big issue. I think Dave Owen was active in that campaign and Huck Boyd. Tell us about Huck Boyd. Was he your Jim Farley? I mean, was he? Uh, yeah, he was everything. You know, he was. 
I remember I've told you, if you, you know, you got to be careful now. We don't want another, like the Jack Benny to Congress. <laughs> so, <laughs> you got to be careful now. You got to watch it. And uh, See, the point being, don't be too funny. Yeah, don't be too funny. You know, there's a good time and a place for that. Da 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 da. But he would drive, he would get in his car from Fiddlesburg and drive all the way to Kansas City, which is a long drive, just to go to some meeting so he could talk to me afterwards. And then whenever I called him at home, his wife was always on the phone. Marie was always listening in because they would visit after we hung up, whether she agreed with him or not. But he was uh, who was gold. I mean, for, for people who don't, who don't know, who, who was he? He was a... Came from a family of big Democrats in Roosevelt era, but they broke because of Roosevelt. Became Republicans, and they published a weekly paper in Phillipsburg, Kansas, and they later bought other papers in Smith Center and Norton. But uh, and he'd been a candidate for governor, and then our state chairman uh, lost in a close race for governor. And I was very active in his campaign. I think that's how we first sort of got acquainted. And he was a well, no, before that he was a great friend of Wint Smith's too. Used to have this little group of uh, when Wint would come to town, we'd meet in a little restaurant near Downs, Kansas, and there'd be about five or six of us, Mr. Voss. Huck Boyd, myself, uh, Mr. Hanson, there's, and Dane Mr. Hansen. Cushing, yeah, the five of them. And we'd talk about strategy and what we ought to do this, and particularly when Went wanted me to run, you know. He'd, and these are my little kitchen cabinet, and they're all senior and all dedicated. If you want to see Dane Hansen, he had to drive to Logan, Kansas. And he would meet you after 9 in the evening. So you drive all the way from Russell. Walk into his office, he'd have a big cigar, he'd be rolling a big cigar around his mouth. And then you'd sit there and you'd talk about, well, what are you doing and where have you been? I think you ought to do this, you ought to do this. And, you know, I think he probably gave me... Uh, Maybe a thousand dollars, which a lot of money in those days. But he had a lot of influence, and they now have the Hanson Foundation. Well, they gave money to the. Yeah. But uh, so I had this sort of group of these people. Charlie Cushing was a banker, and his son Ned had been young Republican national chairman. People like Dean Evans and Salina, and you know, just had good people who were willing to do things. And we had people who would fly me around. In those days, you could didn't have to worry about paying if you find a pilot who had a license. I remember once landing in a pasture, and once landing in. Uh, just ran out of gas just as we hit the runway. I mean, so 
We were saving money, though. John Dart was the pilot of that plane. He's no longer around. A couple of things that I don't really want you to go, because we're right about perfect break. We'll get you to the Senate. Um, your last couple of years in the House, I think George Bush was elected in 66 from Houston. Yeah, and he got a spot on the Ways and Means Committee, which yeah. a lot of us thought was kind of well, I guess it depends what your name is around here. You know, you know. <laughs> Did you have much contact but, with him during this? No, I mean, he was a good guy. I don't remember a lot of contact with him, uh, social contact. We weren't on the, Again, if you're not on the same committees, you never really get to know these people. But, uh, yeah, he was... I remember campaigning for him when he ran for the Senate the first time and he lost. But uh, then, of course, later on, he succeeded me as chairman of the party. We'll get to that later. I remember going to the U.N. and all that stuff, carrying out the charade. But uh, Well, and, that, and that's, that's a good uh, segue to uh, your first encounter with Richard Nixon. Pardon? Your first encounter with Richard Nixon. Oh, Jiminy. I think you said he campaigned for you in '64. Oh, he came to, yeah, he came. He was on his way to Hoover's funeral, and you probably remember the date of that. The October '64. And he stopped in Pratt, Kansas. Made one other stop, too. And I remember he was surrounded by bales of hay. And, you know, really. Had a big, big crowd, and I got a lot of press coverage. And I, I can't remember where we we got on the plane and flew, whether we flew to Pratt or flew to some other larger airport. See, that was '64, right? And he asked me then. He said, "You know, you ever thought about running for the Senate?" So, well, I hadn't really thought about it, but I. I do look over there from time <laughs> so, six year terms, all this stuff, you know. But uh I think that was my I think I'd met him before though, I'm just trying to think. Uh you were impressed? Let's see. I don't know where I met him, though, whether it had been... Uh, well, again, he would have been just leaving Washington when you when you were arriving. Yeah, like right. <coughs> well, let's see, he was... Uh, yeah, he left. I must have met him. Must have had some contact with him. Even before he left, I don't know what, maybe he campaigned for somebody in Kansas or I met him somewhere. Right. I don't think that was my first contact. Yeah. I'll think about it, ago. Yeah. But he, he, he sounds like a guy who was always thinking about politics. Oh, yeah. 
that was. He always had a, I don't remember giving me advice that day, but he was already checking on my future. But he gave advice on football, as you know, to Coach Allen or, uh, and I've got that letter which you've read, the four or five handwritten letter saying if the economy is good, you can't beat Clinton. <laughs> and I said, well, he was right. But he said, don't worry about your age, your voice is strong. And, uh, well, you know what? But he was always, always had a good relationship with Nixon. I had a good relationship with the people around Nixon. But a little thing, like he'd extend his left hand to shake hands with me, just little things, you know, you remember. And, uh, if I wanted to see him, if I could see him at a reception, I'm saying, you know, I'd like to come down and take five minutes. If I went through Curly or some of those people, it never happened. Well, see, this is this has intrigued people for a long time because, you know, you were treated pretty shabbily. I mean, you you oh. you took a lot of arrows in '72 as Nixon's hand-picked Republican national chairman. And, uh, you know, well, you know what thanks you got for it. And, and there are a lot of people over the years who have wondered, given that reality. It was even harder becoming chairman. Uh, you know, they decided in the middle of the night that maybe I wasn't going to be announced the next day as chairman. That's why I had to get Bryce Harlow out of bed, and we spent all night at the RNC. It was raining cats and dogs outside. I think a lot of this came from Haldeman, and it came from people like Saxby and the Republican leader from Pennsylvania. Hugh Scott. Who didn't want me to be chairman that might overshadow, because I was getting fairly vocal at that point. So. You, were, you were basically Nixon's strongest defender. They the called Senate. me the sheriff of the Senate, you know, so. But, uh, but they finally got back on track. Uh, and I know, I, you know, you, you know more about Nixon. Maybe it was his idea. I don't think so. I think it was somebody else. I wonder whether the relationship, I mean, on the surface, you have a lot of things in common. I mean, you both came from very humble backgrounds. You both worked very hard yeah. to, to get where you got. Um, you both had, I mean, Nixon had his silent majority. You know, I mean, the connection with, with millions of people who were maybe overlooked by the establishment, Eastern establishment, but you know, the press and all of that. I mean, did you feel a kind of cultural affinity with Nixon in some ways? That he was a... Well, he was a progressive, too. You know, you look back at some of the things, the welfare reform, the Environmental Protection Agency, all the different things he was... He probably couldn't get the nomination today, you know, probably if he were running for the primaries. Uh, he was pro-choice, too. I don't think it was ever an issue. But... Uh, uh, I don't know, I think it was just the fact that he always sort of treated me as an equal and never 
you know, he had these little ways about you go down and get a picture. He said, here, something to give to your secretary or something. He'd hand you some little necklace or whatever it was, whatever he's passing out for the day. And, uh, but he was, seemed to me to be fairly accessible. You know, if you wanted to see him, you could, and, and I didn't wear out my welcome. But, uh, you, you know, I was chairman of the party, and I, I did raise <clears throat> Watergate a couple of times, saying, you know, I'm, everywhere I go, people are talking about Watergate, and I'd raise it second time, and before I knew it, I wasn't attending <laughs> meetings. <laughs> so, <laughs> were, you, were you surprised when you read the transcripts of the tapes oh, and the language? Yeah. They never used that language that I, you know, that was really, uh, to me, was more, tells you more about, about him than anything else. I mean, about insecurity or whatever it is, I can't. Some people use that to get attention or, and if we did that at home, you know, we got our mouth washed out with soap, so I've never been one of those, but, uh, yeah, Al Gabardo yeah. would not have uh, thrived in your home. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that really surprised me. I couldn't believe this was coming from the President of the United States. But uh, it's pretty earthy. Do you think that hurt him as much as anything with a lot of folks? Well, I think with a lot of people, yeah. older people. Yeah, even maybe people even in their youth maybe done some cursing. and But... Uh, but what he held on to twenty five percent, wasn't it? Did you buy into the notion, this kind of pop psychology notion, that there was sort of a darker side to Nixon and there was a a, a lighter Nixon, and that the people like Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Colson unfortunately really played to and reinforced whatever it was about Nixon's insecurities or uh, darker side. I don't know whether I didn't I you know I would say they're, whether in the light or dark, they're sort of medium most of the time. I mean, I never saw him when he looked like he really enjoyed himself. He was always prepared. I remember taking uh, senators up to see him in New Jersey when he was living up there, and he had his little yellow pad out, and and uh, he knew the senator's father and where they're from, and how many votes he'd gotten there, and all this, you know, and right, there were five of us. I, and I remember when he first came to the Senate, we invited him back up to uh, meet with some Republicans, a sort of rehab program. He checked into the Circle One Hotel, spent the night there, and up until noon, you know, working out what he was going to say. When he came up there, of course, never had a note. And Robert Byrd invited him to meet with Democrats who hated Nixon. You know, they really, Nixon haters. And they left there with their mouths open. He just took them on a trip around the world, one of his foreign policy. And, you know, he had a lot of qualities that just, just set the party back, I don't know how many years. Did he ever, in later years, around you, discuss 
Watergate or uh, you know, the circumstances ever, of his leaving. Yeah. Okay, the only time I've heard him discuss is on Robert Frost, one that or whatever his name is, a British guy. Interview. Oh, oh, Jonathan, um, <coughs> Jonathan Aiken, who did the uh, Nixon biography. Did they discuss it there? And, it, oh, and actually, there's a great line because Aiken, who basically admired Nixon, said at the, Nixon said this was at the end of the process. He said, "Well, how are you coming along?" And Aiken said, "Mr. President, I've decided that you are too complicated a person." any one biographer to understand. And Nixon smiled and said, now you're getting somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't, you know, he, he hated the press. And he was a moderate Republican. He wasn't a, you know. And he just threw it all away. I mean, I well, you may know more about why he kept the tapes than anybody. I don't know. Well, but, but and you, you remember your last visit with him? Of course, you spoke memorably. I'm probably on <clears> the tapes. Throat> I haven't seen what. <laughs> but uh, and Johnson had him before he did. So. Yeah. And the irony is now that the Johnson tapes are coming to light. They've done more to improve Johnson's posthumous yeah. reputation, yeah. you know, than, than anything. I'm not sure. Well, the Nixon tapes will do that. How much have they released the Nixon? They've released about two thirds. Yeah, but of course it's disproportionate. They had to get out all the bad stuff first. They, all the all the criminal, everything related to court cases, which skewered the rest. So, you know, you. you who have yet to really hear Nixon, the foreign policy wizard, or, you know. Um, a couple quick things, and then we got done. Um, an election night, well, first of all, your fall campaign, was, was basically, were you pretty confident once you'd won the Republican nomination in 68 against Bill Avery that uh, yeah. the fall campaign was sort of a cakewalk? Or? Yeah, I think I had some lawyer from Wichita uh, was it uh, Robinson? Bill Robinson. Yes, William T. Robinson. He yeah. won sixty percent of the vote. Yeah. yeah. So that was a pretty good. I mean, it's a Republican state, so. And let's see. And of course, in the Senate, you know, you can do about anything you want. You know, you can start speaking the first day if you want. I mean, I didn't do that, but I, I became pretty active on Vietnam. And I was going to ask you, what, broadly speaking, was it, um, was it difficult in any way transitioning from the House to the Senate? Well, what you know the different? old joke, you know, the first six months you wonder how you got there, <laughs> next six months you wonder how the others got there. But uh, I remember Senator Carlson said, now when you get there, 
first senator you ought to talk to is Senator Stennis from Mississippi. Just a very fine, decent, I didn't agree with him on civil rights, but he's just a great gentleman. And he used to tell me that, uh, that uh, after I lost my mother, he said, you know, I still, my mother's been gone for, I don't know, I think he said 20, 25 years, and he still thinks of calling her on the telephone. You know, maybe it comes up once a week, once a month. And he's just a, just a good guy to know, and he never, never partisan. I never, you know, so. and he and Carlson were great friends. So, but it does kind of free you up a little bit because you don't have an election facing you. Was there anything that surprised you? I mean, in those first first Pardon. days, first few days, first few weeks of the Senate, was there anything that you found surprising, or that you really? Well, I knew a lot of the people, so yeah, yeah, and you get acquainted with your freshman class. We did have orientation then, as I remember, and uh, let's see how long did I. Yeah, Howard Baker was already was hard. Yeah, Howard Baker, I think, was already in there. The class of '66. In fact, you had—I mean—it was a very different Republican caucus in those days. You had, you had Ed Brooke and you had Jake Javits, and um, and Hugh Scott. And I mean, there was a Northeastern. There were liberal Republicans. Oh yeah, I remember voting with Javits on the New York City. He said, "Just vote with me on cloture." I don't need your vote on final passage. I said, I just got to have your vote. I said, okay. I, you know. And it you know, kind of rescued the city. And that's when they said drop dead, the headline, which Ford never said. <laughs> and Ed Brooke and I were good friends. We did a lot of stuff. But, uh, but Dirksen, you see, he died, was it April? It was September of 69. Was it that long? Well, so I came and, yeah, but I think, was, was it, wasn't he sick part of the time? Or? Because I don't really know much. I remember a few meetings with Dirksen, but, yeah. and a few of his little oratorical spurts on the floor, but <laughs> what did we have, 30, we didn't have many Republicans, 38 or uh, yeah. 41. But you had more freedom there. I mean, you weren't, you didn't have the house rules, and you didn't have to. Explain that. You know, every the, senator, you know, you're equal in the fact. Once you get the floor, it's yours. You can keep it as long as you want. And and there's more opportunities for amendment. Uh, rules aren't as strict. They don't have what they call closed rules, where you can't offer amendments. You don't have a rules committee, which say. You can only offer certain amendments. They got to be germane, and uh, but it just you just had more opportunities, and you got a chance to you know meet more people on both sides, like the Humphreys and the others that you 
you'd work with McGovern, stuff like that you'd later work with on food programs or farm programs or whatever. So it's sort of like a, well, it's a big change. You're not running home every weekend either. I think I did probably early on, but And you presumably attract more attention than you did in the House, just because. Yeah, I've always felt that was unfair to House members. I mean, there are a lot, particularly on the Sunday talk shows. I mean, how many times do you see congressmen so and so, and they may know more, much more about it than senator so and so. But there's something about the media that, well, senators are a little higher up the ladder, so. But uh, I was on a lot of them, so I think I still have the record on Meet the Press. Do you remember the first time you ever appeared on uh, on a Sunday talk show? No, but I was probably scared to death. <laughs> <laughs> Last question for today. And that, uh, the staff, I mean, presumably you need a bigger staff than you had in the House. Did you, did you keep most of the same people? And what were you looking for? What what are the qualities you were looking for in the people that uh, that you? Well, I think in those days, I you know I wanted to be from Kansas. I wanted somebody knew my state, knew the issues, and know people when they walked in the front door. Uh, I, I later changed that on the theory that you need a balanced staff because suddenly in the Senate. It's not your district, it's now your state, and after you've been there a while, it's the region, and then pretty soon it's the country, you know, so you're, you need to broaden out a little bit if you get everybody focused on Kansas. And, you know, I had the first woman chief of staff as majority leader, appointed the first woman secretary of Senate, Joanne, First Hispanic deputy sergeant at arms, and uh, so we had a pretty broad mix. Uh, had, had Joanne worked for you in the House? No. No, she came in the Senate. Yeah. You never find another one like Joanne. I mean. And how did you hook? How did you hook up originally? I don't know how she came to us, but really. You know, uh, yeah. I think she had worked for uh, Congressman Cooley in North Carolina, and whether he lost or defeated or something, he was from Raleigh, and somehow she came to us, and boy, that was. Was that feeling? I'm early? still I still do things every day that Joanne would have done in 30 seconds. I'm in there writing longhand responses to letters that I would use to just say, "Here you are, Joanne. Here's a." another load. I don't have anybody like that in the office that can, so I've got to laboriously write them out. And, and what did she do for you? I mean, what were her, what did she bring to the, to the operation? Uh, well, first she'd run the office. People knew she had the authority. <laughs> and she knew people all across the country. If she could talk to some of these big CEOs or see of companies, you know, for when you used to be able to raise money uh, without going over to the committee. 
And they would talk to Joanne. They would not talk to me. Plus, she just had this, she just, I don't know, she just understood politics and understood what it took. And she used to caution me, no, I wouldn't do that if I were you. No, no, I wouldn't get involved in that. And then, of course, she ran my Campaign America thing for a while. And uh, but she was... Totally loyal. Loyal, loyally. She'd anybody say anything bad about Bob Dole, she'd if she had a chance. But uh, tough. She had an aneurysm, you know. I remember I was in North Carolina campaigning for Elizabeth. She called me and said, "I've got this terrible." I called her. Said, "I've got this terrible back pain." I said, "You've had kidney problems." I said, Joanne, I don't know what it is, but you better get to a hospital. Well, instead of going there, she went to one of these Nova, Nova clinics first, and then by the time she got to the hospital, six hours later, she was gone. Once that aorta breaks. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much. We've got this some covered great. there, I guess. Oh. <laughs> what are you going to do with all this, this is stuff? great.